You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Denver Food Banks Brace for Demanding New Year by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading All Those Crows Will Remember You, So Be Nice by Desiree Matherin. And A Follower of the Denver Gunman Warned Police a Year Before the Attack by Andrew Kenny. From Westward, I'll be reading King Super's Union Workers to Strike on January 12th by Michael Roberts and Marshall Fire Update by The Awful Numbers, also by Michael Roberts. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Denver Food Banks Brace for Demanding New Year by Robert Davis. Across the city, food banks face significant challenges stemming from the pandemic. Like other food businesses, they struggle to mitigate the impacts of inflation and rising food costs. Meanwhile, food banks saw an increase in demand, unlike other years, as the pandemic caused more people to experience food instability. Aaron Pulling, chief executive of Food Bank of the Rockies, which serves the Denver metro area and most of northern Colorado, told Denver Voice that meeting this increased demand proved to be the organization's biggest success and its greatest challenge last year. Food banks and food pantries have increased distributions more than we could have imagined, Pulling said. What that has meant for Food Bank of the Rockies is that we are spending a lot more on our food purchasing. We've had to triple the amount of money we're spending on food just since 2019. Food Bank of the Rockies said in its annual report that it spent upwards of $1 million per month to provide food to local communities through its more than 800 partner organizations in both Colorado and Wyoming. Meanwhile, the organization measured a significant increase in demand for food increased across its 53-county service area. Over the last year, Demand rose 50% per month when compared to historical averages, with some months topping 80%, the report said. Still, Food Bank of the Rockies distributes more than 110 million pounds of food, or more than 89.5 million meals, to people in need last year. This is despite food costs outside of the home rising by 6.7% in Denver over the last 12 months, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The organization was also able to expand its culturally responsive food program through it, throughout its service area, giving recipients a way to connect with their loved ones if they cannot be together, Pulling said. The program offers regional items like pinto beans, teff, masa, and bluebird flour to its clientele. To Tai Nguyen, who runs Denver's Kazan Food Rescue, a partner organization for Food Bank of the Rockies, the culturally responsive food program also helps to increase healthy food options in communities that do not have many nutritious options. Kazen is a free market that offers fresh ingredients to its clientele, many of which are sourced from local farmers markets, Wynn said. The Food Rescue has also partnered with more than 20 local organizations to build out its distribution network. Before the pandemic, 
Wynn said Kazan would typically serve between 150 and 200 families per day. During the pandemic, that number jumped to between 350 and 500 as many families began to experience food insecurity. According to the latest data from the Census Bureau, more than 136,000 households in Colorado report not having enough food to eat because they can't afford it. That total includes more than 40,000 households with children. This increase in demand meant that Kazan needed to secure more funds to expand. The organization received a grant from Jefferson County through the Federal CARES Act and has expanded its donor base, Wynn said. However, the organization is looking for new ways to build capacity and sustainability as federal pandemic aid dollars are drying up. At the same time, Wynn said she wants to focus on giving Kazan's volunteers more time to rest. Kazan's network has grown considerably since the pandemic, but Wynn said she wants to take a more holistic approach to meet the upcoming year's demands. Right now, Kazan is averaging 23 food distribution events per month, with as many as three events being held on the same day. It was the community voicing their opinion and asking us to do more that really forced us to make these changes, Wynn said, and I don't see us going back to normal anytime soon. The following two articles are from Denverite. All Those Crows Will Remember You, So Be Nice, by Desiree Matherin. They perch on tree branches in Park Hill, screaming at dog walkers. They lurk atop the high-rises downtown, looking down solemnly at pedestrians like gargoyles. Murders have invaded Denver. Murders of crows, that is. Denverites, including yours truly, have noticed more of the ominous black birds cawing and carousing around the city, and some readers have asked, what is up with the mega-crow invasion? The black figures that hover and screech might make you feel like you're in an Alfred Hitchcock movie, but the crows mean no harm. They belong in Denver, are actually pretty sociable, and probably notice you as well. I can say confidently that we do see an influx of crows every winter, if you compare that to summer or breeding season for crows, said Garth Spellman, an ornithologist with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. People don't always consider a large burr like, bird like a crow to necessarily be migratory, but they do undergo seasonal movements. The urban corridor along the front range is a really good wintering habitat for them. There's lots of roosting sites with tall trees and neighborhoods, and humans are a particularly wasteful species, so there's lots of food for them. Crows can and do breed in Colorado during the warmer months, but many mate in Canada, sometimes as far as northern Canada, or places with a higher elevation. Spellman said crow migration patterns are short-distanced, so the crows Denverites are noticing may stay in Colorado year-round. Crows are sociable animals, but during the breeding season, they form pairs and will find nesting sites to protect their young. Essentially, they isolate themselves. So when the season is over, they're overly ready to return to their large communal roosts, much like extroverted humans. Crows are an extremely social species, Spellman said. So they form these very large social groups, and you know a large group of crows is called a murder of crows. But these are just large social groups, and they are communicating with one another. So when you went outside and noticed the large group, their communications are probably saying, oh, a human just walked into our area. They're commenting on you, too, the way you're observing them. 
Not only are the crows watching you, they are remembering you as well, Spellman said. That's because crows are part of the corvid family of birds, which includes ravens and magpies. According to an avian IQ scale, corvids rank among the highest in intelligence. Spellman said in one study, different people put on the same mask and began to harass a set of crows. The crows fought back, and after a while, they started to remember the mask. As time went on, regardless of who wore the mask, every time the crows saw it, they attacked. The memory became a generational trait. Spellman said future generations of the crows also remembered the mask and continued to attack it. This suggests they're passing down cultural information. This human with this face is something you want to stay away from, harass and abuse to get out of your environment, Spellman said. They pass down information in such a way that we would. Living in these social groups helps them. The invasion of crows is almost over. Spellman said the breeding season starts around March, and the birds will slowly go back to their pairing nests. No more loud cawing or, as one reader said, nasty messes on the sidewalk. But there is one more question. If crows are so smart and sociable, why do they have such a sinister reputation? Spellman said we can thank Europeans and Edgar Allan Poe for that bias. It's also because crows are scavengers. Crows will eat from carcasses, picking the flesh off of what's left behind, Spellman said. And since crows convene in large groups, a hundred or so birds eating a rotted animal can make for a gruesome sight. They call it a murder of crows because they congregate at scenes that might be construed as being murders, Spellman said. In Hinduism, crows are seen as messengers of both good and bad omens. In some indigenous mythologies, crows signify wisdom, are thought to be creators of the world, and are considered to be great company, Spellman added. But in other indigenous myths, including Australian Aboriginal mythology, crows are tricksters and mischievous. Seems like crows are just the life of the party. Though they may be good company and sociable, Spellman doesn't suggest feeding them. Just be nice, and they'll remember you fondly. So, when you come out of your apartment or house and you're nice to the crows, maybe they're saying, that's a good human, Spellman said. A follower of the Denver gunman warned police a year before the attack by Andrew Kinney. Last year, a letter sent to Denver authorities warned that a man with local connections could be planning a violent act. Last week, that man, Lyndon McLeod, killed five people in a shooting spree across Denver and Lakewood. He has a motive, he has the means, and he has put a target date on his project, which makes it a sick but effective plan, read a letter dated January 2021 from Andre, Andre Thiel, who provided a copy of the document to Denverite this week. I cannot in good conscience say that he will act with certainty, but I can say that if he should act, the result would be devastating. He then would stop at nothing, the document warned. Denver police officials confirmed that they had received the letter from Thiel last January, along with a list of potential contacts. The Denver Post first reported on the letter. Denver police investigated the tip, including a possible connection to fraud, but investigators found there was not sufficient evidence to file criminal charges or a legal basis for monitoring McLeod at the time, wrote spokesperson Doug Shepman in an email. Thiel knew of the gunman through his self-published novels, 
which had attracted a following in male-dominated corners of the Internet. Thiel said he briefly corresponded with a police detective in the days after sending the letter and that a mutual acquaintance also heard from law enforcement. Police Chief Paul Pazin said his department looked into the gunman in 2020 and 2021. The gunman wasn't living in Denver at the time of his contacts with the police. The department did not contact any other agencies about the investigation and couldn't find sufficient grounds to try to take away his weapons under the red flag law, officials said earlier. Thiel said he first encountered the gunman under his pen name, Roman McClay, on Twitter around 2018. The gunman was just beginning to self-publish a trilogy of books. He had a very unique Twitter feed, recalled Thiel, an emergency medical worker in Mainz, Germany. He was talking about his life on top of a mountain, and it was really, really impressive what he showed of his life. Over the next two years, Thiel would be drawn deep into the author's orbit in the digital manosphere. Thiel was attracted to the red pill online circles because of discussions about sexual dynamics between men and women, he said. But Thiel soon realized, he said, that the gunman's work was filled with violent imagery and hate symbols, including a version of the bolts symbol used by certain Nazi forces, which appeared on the gunman's book covers. At first, he said, he didn't realize how extreme McLeod was because American culture is saturated with violence and extreme images. He also did not realize the connection between the author and his murderous character. The character used the author's real name, while the books were published under a pen name. Meanwhile, the shooter was gaining a following online and leaving potential signs of his future killings, which large, largely targeted people whom he knew through his endeavors in the tattoo and marijuana industries. After a business failure that he blamed on others, the shooter went to a very dark place, and I had all kinds of ideas of what I was going to do in order to make this right, he told the YouTube host Zuby in a since-deleted 2019 interview. I said, look, if this book thing doesn't work, you can go back to plan A. In the summer of 2020, he launched a Patreon where fans could give him money to support an audio edition of the books. Supporters, including Thiel, were allowed to join a Telegram chat group with him. The book was a riddle to me. I wanted to solve the riddle, Thiel said. At this point, I still believed that this was a novel, that this was literature. Up to about 80 people joined the group, Thiel estimated, and the gunman himself often made appearances. Over the months, Thiel said he grew increasingly disturbed by the gunman's statements, which often focused on the idea that war is coming and embraced societal collapse. I realized more and more that this was basically just about him, about his urges and his thoughts and his dark and destructive nature, Thiel said. He also realized, he said, that he was lying about many details of his life. The chat group eventually broke up late in 2020 as people raised concerns about the behavior of the author, Thiel said. A year later, Thiel learned about the shooting from notifications on his phone. YouTube creators were talking about the gunman and his path through the manosphere. Thiel said the shootings were the terrible and tragic manifestation of the gunman's violence-obsessed philosophy, but his motives remain unclear and police have offered only limited public comments while they investigate. He signed this book with blood, Thiel said. He's still asking himself what he could have done differently. 
One of the biggest mistakes I made is that I took things too lightly, Thiel said. This was all there from the beginning. The following articles are from Westward. King Super's Union Workers to Strike on January 12th by Michael Roberts. Days after King Super's employees in Metro Denver and Colorado Springs, represented by United Food and Commercial Workers Local 7, voted to authorize a strike, the union has announced the time and date for a walkout, 5 a.m. Wednesday, January 12th. The strike is currently scheduled to continue for three weeks until February 2nd. UFCW Local 7 represents approximately 17,000 workers at 148 King Super stores in Colorado and two in Wyoming. In announcing the impending action, Kim Cordova, the president of Local 7 and vice president of UFCW International, issued a statement. UFCW Local 7 members who work at King Supers have had enough of the company's unfair labor practices and will strike starting January 12th. This is a direct result of the company's bad faith at the bargaining table. King Supers is enjoying record profits while leaving its workers to struggle with low wages. Grocery workers ensure that our communities have access to food, but they cannot even afford to feed their own families. This is grossly unfair. King Supers has chosen to enrich its bottom line instead of protecting workers who have risked their lives on the front lines. Local 7 and King Supers have had a prickly relationship in recent years. In December 2020, for example, the union pushed its call for a return of the so-called hero pay, a $2 per hour bump given to employees during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. By projecting images, some featuring Dr. Seuss's Grinch character, on selected branches. Bargaining sessions for a new contract to replace a pack that expires at 11.59 p.m. on January 8th have been underway in recent weeks. But on December 29th, Local 7 filed a lawsuit for what it described as breach of contract over vendors in the stores. After the subsequent strike vote by workers in the Denver-Boulder area, King Super's spokesperson Jessica Traubage pushed back against claims by Local 7, noting that last week King Supers provided a comprehensive offer that included $145 million in new wage investments, a proposal that the UFCW Local 7 have yet to counteroffer. We care deeply about our associates and know that a work stoppage creates a troubling position that often leads to financial hardships for our associates. Trowbridge also divulged that the company is in the process of filing unfair labor practice charges against the union president and Local 7 for its bad faith bargaining and tactics, as well as pursuing other legal action for unlawful conduct. King Supers has not yet responded to Westward's request for comment about the announcement of a strike date or the status of that filing. In the meantime, Cordova contends that our plea remains the same. Stop these unfair labor practices and respect us protect us, and pay us what we deserve. UFCW Local 7 members will remain on strike until the company agrees to cease these unfair labor practices and comes to the negotiating table in good faith. During this strike, we ask for the support of our community. We are grateful for all the overwhelming support received and for the individuals, union partners, organizations that will be coming to Colorado to support our efforts and fight. We will continue to be relentless in the fight for our members.
Marshall Fire Update by the Awful Numbers by Michael Roberts. Today, January 7th, Governor Jared Polis and U.S. Representative Joe Neguse, joined by Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, are scheduled to guide President Joe Biden on a tour of the areas devastated by the Marshall Fire. Two people are still missing after the blaze, which was 100% contained earlier this week. Partial human remains were found near Marshall Road on January 5th. In advance of Biden's visit, Boulder County has provided new information about the number of buildings impacted, and the statistics are startling. More than 1,000 homes were destroyed, over 100 were damaged, and losses are estimated at over half a billion dollars, making this one of the most expensive catastrophes in Colorado history and the final cost will be significantly higher. In recent days, inspectors with the Boulder Office of Disaster Management, among others, have conducted wide-ranging assessments as Boulder County, the city of Louisville, and the town of Superior update the list of residential and commercial structures partly or wholly ruined. Here's the updated rundown for residential structures. City of Louisville, 550 structures destroyed, 43 structures damaged. Actual value of residential damage is approximately $229,199,184. Town of Superior, 378 structures destroyed, 58 structures damaged. Actual value of residential damage is approximately $152,757,462. Unincorporated Boulder County, 156 structures destroyed, 48 damaged. Actual value of residential damage is approximately $131,255,944. These figures come to 1,084 residential structures destroyed and 149 residential structures damaged. That brings the overall countywide total loss as estimated by the Boulder County Assessor to $513,212,589. How does that compare to previous catastrophes? The Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association calculates costs by insured losses. Assuming that all of the destroyed and damaged structures were insured and using the assessor's values, the Marshall Fire would be in sixth place, just below the wildfire that struck Colorado Springs in 2012. Moreover, the current total doesn't include damage to commercial structures. According to Boulder County, four commercial structures were destroyed and 14 damaged in Louisville, and three commercial structures were destroyed and 14 damaged in Superior. In addition, two commercial structures were damaged in unincorporated Boulder County, adding up to seven commercial structures destroyed and 30 damaged countywide and officials say the actual value of these losses is incomplete and being calculated. An Ode to the Breakfast King by Teague Bolin It was a raffish diner of the night's quietness, a foster child of silence and slow time. A Denver historian that expressed a culinary tale more sweetly than this rhyme. Okay, it's no Keats, and the already mourned Breakfast King which closed suddenly and without much warning, even to its employees, on January 3rd, is no Grecian urn. But as Keats's arguably most famous ode is about timelessness, so too was the Breakfast King.
For nearly 50 years, though, Breakfast King had had that sense about it that it's been around forever, like it sprung up bearing green chili right there on South Santa Fe as soon as the road was built. It was good to be the king. If you know diners, you knew the Breakfast King. It's been a stalwart on best of lists for years, always in the top ten of any diner list that any publication might print. It even gained national attention back in 2009, when Esquire magazine lauded the Breakfast King as one of the best breakfast places in America, praising the country-fried steak smothered in sausage gravy and so tender you can cut it with your fork. Of course, Denver didn't need Esquire's imprimatur to recommend Breakfast King. Anyone who's been up at 3 or 4 in the morning, either starting their day or ending it, has probably been there and probably loved it. It wasn't that the food was amazing, though it was, or that they knew how to fill a cup, though they did, or that they knew that customers came back time and time again because of the welcome they felt coming through that door any time of the day, though we did. It was all that and more. It was quintessential Denver, and unlike the white spot restaurants of years past, it hung on. It survived. Hell, it was a place that locals even wrote songs about. Which is why I'd already known the place for almost a decade by the time Esquire got around to recommending it. It was one of the first places I found when I moved to Denver in 1999, a place I saw along the road and made a mental note to check out. I'd long been an advocate of the position that you can tell a city by its diners. That's where the history is, along with the old-timers that not only know it, but like to talk. When I made it there that first morning, with a copy of the Rocky Mountain News, and a hope that this place was going to be good, I had no idea. When I walked in, I remember feeling as though the Breakfast King was a place outside of time. There had been no years, which was saying something, because back in 1999, all we were talking about was time, Y2K, the millennium, the end and the beginning. But here was a place where none of that seemed to matter. I sat in an orange booth by the window, a seat that would have made sense in any decade, from stylish in 1975 to charmingly outdated by the 80s and 90s, and what would become kitschy cool after the turn of the century. I'd heard good things about the green chili, but I'm from the Midwest, so country fried steak it was. I remember loving the gravy and the steak, and my waitress, who could have been cosplaying Flo from Alice and winning a gum-snapping best-in-show, and the people watching. It was a menagerie. Always was. This beautiful melting pot of perspectives. What men or gods were these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuits? What struggles to escape? What pipes and dime bags? What wild ecstasy? It was anyone's guess. Two guys could be passing each other the hot sauce, wearing earrings for completely and utterly different reasons. When I left that first time, I knew I'd be back. And I was, though clearly not enough. It's never enough when it's too late. Still, when I went back, I went back as much for the place and its people as for the fair. Heard conversations are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, I wanted that strange and hungry crowd to please murmur on. It was the gentle cacophony of the place that somehow added to the quietude. It was the sort of place where you could talk with the folks in the booth next to you, but you could also be comfortably alone, solitary in a room full of Denverites, each one going about their day, living out their own stories. 
It was a warm belly pastoral of the mile-high life, captured anew every day in the remains of omelets and biscuits and gravies left on plates like grease-built found art. It both marked time and refused it. Until January 3rd, 2022. Breakfast King became another victim of the pandemic, though the specific surrounding cause of death have yet to be determined. It folded like the house of cards of which so many American cities seem to have been made. We avoided a stiff breeze for decades until COVID came around and blew everything down. Denver still has some wonderful diners serving food worthy of their own odes, but the city has lost so many. Tom's, Nick's, Denver Diner, 20th Street Cafe, and now Breakfast King. If only the Breakfast King were a little more like Keats's urn, it remained in the midst of other local woe for decades, while old age and progress both did generations waste. Its doors stayed open for us, and though now they're closed and the steaks have stopped being country-fried and smothered in sausage gravy or green chili, the coffee cups never again to be refilled, the orange booths, forever empty of Denver's spectrum of strangers, the fact will remain that the Breakfast King was here. It was here, as it was always here, and in the hearts and stomachs of multitudes it will remain. That is all we know in Denver, and all we need to know. Armando Saldate taking on public safety leadership role at end of Hancock tenure by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. At a time when mayoral appointees are jumping ship from the term-limited administration of Michael Hancock, the newly appointed executive director of Denver's Department of Public Safety views the short time he may have in the job as an advantage. I'm thinking of this as the fourth quarter. I'm thinking of this as the last leg of a long race. This is the time to sprint, to give everything I have for 18 months, says Armando Saldate, a career law enforcement official tapped by Hancock on January 5th to fill the slot left open by the resignation of Murphy Robinson. Soldate's appointment must still be confirmed by Denver City Council, a step that voters approved in 2020. But Soldate is already looking past that step to what he can do on the job. I know I can help, he says. I know I can make things better. He's felt he could help this city before. Soldate who's originally from Arizona and served for over 20 years in the Phoenix Police Department, including a lengthy stint working with the FBI Phoenix Division tracking financial transactions of terrorist organizations, was reading a newspaper article in June of 2014 about the Denver Sheriff Department. It detailed the 2010 in-custody death of Marvin Booker, which led to the sheriff stepping down and the department's internal affairs section being reformed. I had a calling that I could help, he recalls, and I was hearing that they wanted to bring in an outside investigator. I applied, and I was lucky enough to get hired as an outside investigator. Saldate moved to Denver and took a job as a senior investigator with the Denver Sheriff Department. He then became a civilian commander in the Internal Affairs Bureau before ultimately transitioning to supervisor in the Sheriff Department's Data Science Unit. From there, Soldate moved to public safety, which oversees the police, fire, and sheriff departments. Under Robinson, who became director in January of 2020, Soldate helped set up large-scale COVID-19 testing sites and also worked on establishing new initiatives related to homelessness, such as the city's early intervention team and street enforcement team. 
You know, I've been right in the midst of working on this issue of unsheltered homelessness and, it, and the city's response to that, Saldati says. It's a difficult issue. We have a community that is very divided in its response. The early intervention team, established in late 2020, includes city employees who visit budding encampments and offer services, with the goal of preventing them from growing into larger encampments. First set up in public safety, that team is now located in the Department of Housing Stability. The street enforcement team is an even newer program that authorizes city employees to enforce laws typically associated with people experiencing homelessness, such as unauthorized camping and public urination. Although members of the team have started going out with officers on the Denver Police Department's homeless outreach team, they have not begun doing enforcement because they're still waiting for their uniforms. In the meantime, though, service providers have expressed concerns that this new team will further criminalize homelessness. First of all, I am very empathetic to our homeless community. I am very empathetic to people who are living on the side of the road, under a tarp, in extreme cold, responds Soldate. While I know people are dissatisfied with the city's response or approach, the problem has grown so large, and I see people every day who are trying to strike that balance of trying to deliver services to people. Denver City Council Rep Candy Sidabaka is no fan of Soldate's work, and does not consider the EIT or SET programs a success. This is one of the worst choices the mayor could have made to replace former director Robinson, she says. Armando Saldate was behind some of Robinson's most capricious and reckless decisions, as well as the city's most recent muddled and failed homelessness responses. Mr. Saldate has broken trust with the community and with our office at a time when we need trust and strong, collaborative relationships with the safety department the most. But Saldate believes in the work he's done on homelessness, especially with the EIT. I've seen miracles. Is it enough? No, because we have so much unsheltered homelessness, he says. Saldate commonly uses the phrase harm reduction when talking about how to approach the issues of homelessness and substance misuse. He supports the safe camping site model for people experiencing homelessness because it's an effective tool for reducing harm for those people, he says. However, he's not ready to commit to pushing supervised injection sites for people who use intravenous drugs. In New York City, two supervised injection sites went operational in the last weeks of the tenure of Mayor Bill de de Blasio marking the first time that such sites have been sanctioned by a government entity in the U.S. These types of sites exist in Canada and in Europe and have been shown to virtually eliminate the risk of overdose death among those injecting drugs inside the facility, as staffers are able to reverse overdoses using naloxone. Under the leadership of former Denver City Councilman Albus Brooks, Denver approved a measure that created a framework for such sites. The city had been waiting on the Colorado General Assembly to pass its own legislation. But under the Trump administration, federal prosecutors had threatened municipalities with retribution if they allowed these sites to open. We need to study New York, Saldate says. I want to get more information. I want to get through the politics. I want to get through the strong feelings on either side of an issue. I want to see what the data says. And council members... Chief among them, Sidabaka, 
will no doubt want to see what Saldate has to tell them about his plans for public safety as the Hancock administration heads into its final 18 months. Bad weather gives free pass to hit-and-run Hummer by Michael Roberts. This morning, January 6th, the Westminster Police Department, like many law enforcement agencies across the metro area, is on accident alert status because of snowy, icy road conditions. On Twitter, the WPD encourages people to report injury accidents as well as accidents where one or more of the vehicles involved cannot be driven, accidents involving damage to city, state, federal property, accidents involving drivers under the influence of alcohol or drugs, and hit-and-run accidents just occurred with suspect info. For all other crashes, drivers are told to file a report online. But as Melanie Cherie discovered, the WPD wants very specific suspect info for hit-and-run accidents. On January 2nd, in conditions much like those around Denver right now, the Boulder resident was the victim of a hit-and-run that caused major damage to her partner's truck. But because she wasn't able to see the license plate number of the Hummer H2 that smashed into her, Westminster police aren't investigating the incident, despite the very strong possibility that easily accessible video could allow investigators to find the suspect. I just feel like the system is broken, she says. The incident took place on southbound Federal Boulevard approaching 80th Avenue. It was about 4.05 in the morning, Cherie recalls, and I was heading home. I'd happened to take my partner's truck that night to drive because of how bad the roads were, since the vehicle's four-wheel drive. I was heading down Federal on a little hill, and this silver Hummer-type truck got behind me. I was going pretty slow in the right-hand lane because of how slick it was, and I think they were trying to pass me. They sped on up the hill and lost control. She knew impact was imminent, but there was no way you can really prepare yourself for something like that, she says. I grabbed the steering wheel really tight, and I remember saying to myself, Oh, shit. And they hit me really hard. The truck bed kind of went off its frame and into the cab a little bit, and the hatch broke on the tailgate. But the bed is what saved me. The accident kind of happened in an intersection, Cherie continues, and since it was so slippery, I thought it would be better to get out off the road, so I pulled into a Conoco gas station, and they followed me. I thought, okay, we're going to exchange information. But I was shook up, and I took a moment to take a few deep breaths in the truck, and when I got out to talk to this person, they backed out and drove away. Shortly after the Hummer disappeared, Cherie phoned the Westminster Police Department. They basically told me that since I didn't have license plate information and the weather was so bad, they couldn't do anything, and they wouldn't be coming out to take an official report, she recalls. And when she subsequently asked if she could file a criminal complaint, she said she was told that the best I could do was file an accident report through the DMV, which does absolutely nothing. It would be solely for insurance purposes. Investigator Cherry Spotkey, a spokesperson for the WPD, confirms Cherie's account. The only suspect information she could provide was a silver Hummer, she notes. Our accident alert policy states if there isn't a license plate, we refer them to the state website to file a report. This is so there is documentation of the accident for insurance purposes. There is nothing more an officer would do or be able to do in this instance. Spotkey explains that the purpose of accident alert is due to the sheer number of accidents. 
It frees up officers to respond to the more serious injury accident or those accidents with suspect information. We understand Ms. Cherie's frustration, but there isn't anything for the police to follow up on. That's not quite right. Cherie, who experienced significant body soreness from the speed of the impact and whiplash effects, correctly suspected that the Conoco was outfitted with cameras, and I thought they could look at the footage, she says, but they won't release the footage to me. They'll only release the footage to the police, but the police told me that I couldn't get it because I didn't have the information that they would need. With nowhere else to turn, Cherie recorded a video that she's posted to various social media sites asking for help locating a Hummer with a battered front end. There's another problem, too. Cherie's partner had tried paying his insurance premium using the company's app, but it didn't go through because of an apparent glitch, she says. As a result, he was uninsured at the time of the accident and will likely have to pay to repair the truck himself. It's just bad all around, Cherie confesses. It makes me feel that if it's that bad out, it's not worth risking your life, especially for people who are out there in a smaller car. It could have been someone in a small sedan that got hit, or somebody walking outside, and that person would have just driven away. As for the Hummer driver, there have been no repercussions, she says. Hit and runs are supposed to be a felony, so I can't understand how there's no follow-up. It just seems wrong, really messed up. Remembering Jazz Bassist Paul Warburton by John Solomon Bassist Paul Warburton, a longtime fixture of Denver's jazz scene who worked with numerous jazz legends passing through Colorado, died on Wednesday, January 5th at the age of 79. Guitarist Dale Bruning, who spent a decade performing as a duo with Warburton, says that the bassist had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and had contracted COVID earlier this week. Warburton told Westward in 1997 that at the age of 14, before he started playing bass, he'd lay on his bed, covered with an old chenille blanket with fringe, and listen to late-night jazz shows on the radio. And when I'd hear a bass line that I wanted to play, I'd hold one end of the fringe between my teeth, and then I'd tighten it and loosen it and pluck on it until I actually learned to walk a bass line along with the radio, Warburton told Westward. It was really amazing. I was actually able to walk a line with the damn fringe, or at least I thought it was a line. If I heard it today, what I was doing back then, I'd probably be laughing my butt off. Warburton, who was born in Denver in 1942, taught himself to play bass by copying Red Mitchell and Ray Brown solos from their albums. Bruning says Warburton and Mitchell eventually became friends. The thing about Paul that I was always impressed with was that he played very solid bass lines, that's for sure, Bruning says. He was an excellent soloist on bass, and that's why his main man was Red Mitchell, as he could play beautiful solos on the bass. Paul had a wonderful technique, he continues. It was amazing how a lot of bass players would do these technical things with two fingers like a classical guitarist, but Paul would do more. Almost all of it was with his index finger. It was amazing how fast he could move his index finger and get things played the way he wanted to. That technique just came naturally to him. Warburton told Westward that he took one bass lesson, but it really slowed him down. When I was a kid, we were very poor, so I learned to play the bass by sneaking my half-brother's bass out when he left it at our house, Warburton said. 
and I learned my correct hand positions by spending hours flipping through records in the store bins looking for pictures of bass players so I could see the different ways they held their hands. Years later, I realized that I had this innate talent for this particular instrument and music in general. Technical things that other bassists have to train themselves to think about doing just came naturally to me. I didn't really know that I was using a lot of accepted classical techniques, he continued. It was just comfortable to me, so I did it. While attending East High School, Warburton started playing professionally at 17, working with house bands around Denver and later backing up legendary players like Milt Jackson when they came to town. He and Bruning released their duo album, Our Delight, on local jazz label Capri Records in 1987. In the liner notes of Our Delight, Warburton credits a month-long stint in California with pianist Billy, Bill Evans and Philly Joe Jones with totally changing my harmonic conception and musical approach. Bruning says that Evans was Warburton's favorite musician of all time, and playing with the pianist was a thrill for him. Bruning adds that Warburton was disappointed that Evans didn't choose him to be his regular bassist. Bill just thanked him for playing with him, Bruning says, and then Paul went back home to Denver, but he never heard from Bill again, and that's why it's so disappointing. Bruning says that over the years, he and Warburton backed up many vocalists who would sometimes forget lyrics in the middle of songs. If Paul heard that happening, he would whisper out those lyrics to the singer, Bruning says. If you played any of the standards, he knew the lyrics to those tunes. On Warburton's Facebook page, there's a photo of him with the legendary bassist Milt Hinton, who was nicknamed The Judge. It was taken during a Dick Gibson jazz party in the mid-1980s at the Fairmont Hotel in Denver, Warburton wrote. Milt was called the judge for a specific reason. After hearing you play, he would sentence you to X amount of days in jail. In other words, the better you played, the more days you had to spend in the joint. He gave me 10 days, and I'm curious about other bassist friends of mine on Facebook who suffered similar consequences of their ability on our instrument from the judge. Warburton recorded with Pete Kreislieb, Bobby Norris, Joe Bonner, Richie Cole, Cal Jader, and Dick Hindeman, and worked with Stan Getz and Pharaoh Sanders. Warburton also released his solo album, Speak Low, in 1997, which featured an all-star lineup of Denver players, including trumpeter Ron Miles, pianist Eric Gunnison, and drummer Nat Yarborough. Warburton and many other Denver jazz musicians can also be seen in the 1996 film Almost Blue, which was shot in Denver and stars Michael Madsen and Garrett Morris. In the late 90s, Warburton and local woodworker and jazz lover Bob Ross went into business making their own basses that catered to jazz and classical bassists. Warburton told Westward that with regard to playing, at one time he fed off the ego thing a bit, like anyone would. But that gets you in trouble, Warburton said. Once the ego starts trying to take care of business, you kind of lose the music. So I try to look at my playing for what it is. There's a lot that I can't do, but I don't get uptight anymore about not being able to do some things. I've learned to enjoy the talent that I do have and to try to use it to communicate with people through music. And that's really as far as it goes. Grab your wands. Potted Potter is coming to Denver by Claire Duncombe. Potted Potter is a two-man comedy show that bends the plots of the seven Harry Potter books into 70 minutes of parody 
and it's coming to the Newman Center for the Performing Arts from Tuesday, January 4th through Saturday, January 9th. Known as the Unauthorized Harry Experience, Jefferson Turner and Daniel Clarkson initially created the act as a 10-minute sketch for the release of Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince, the penultimate book, in 2005. The show has been in near-constant rotation since, touring around the world. We were thinking naively that we would be performing for about 100 people, Turner says. There were closer to 1,200, and the comedians performed multiple times to different sections of the line. We never experienced anything like it, Turner adds, comparing it to 1960s Beatlemania. Turner had read all five of the existing Harry Potter books in the weeks before their performance. He says he just adored them, and, if anything, they're page-turners. Turner describes Potted Potter as your classic straight man funny act. He often plays the straight man to Clarkson's oblivious buffoon. Eventually, however, the audience finds out that it's just two fools trying to retell the story, Turner clarifies, and we do manage it, though lots is planned to go wrong. The course of the show encompasses seven books, 360 characters, one fire-breathing dragon, and one Quidditch match, the Potted Potter website boasts. There are also references to pop culture and literature and simple slapstick that anyone can enjoy. Turner and Clarkson created the first hour-long Potted Potter in 2006. After a successful show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2008, they took the performance on the road. By 2012, they performed in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Canada. They waited to perform in the United States until 2013. We were terrified when we first brought it out to the States, Turner says, citing a fear that the British jokes wouldn't land. But they opened in New York City, and the audience got the humor immediately. In fact, they only need change certain cultural references to suit different global audiences. Even so, Potted Potter is constantly evolving. Turner says he and Clarkson have performed it over 2,000 times, so it's more fun for them to change up the sequence. Their favorite moments are when they deliver jokes that make all ages in the audience laugh, in part because they hope their show will encourage children to love the theater. When you're a kid, there's something magical about laughing at the same joke as your mom or dad, Turner says. Much of the success of the comedy show is credited to the long-lasting appeal of Harry Potter, Turner continues. They've done a few other spin-offs, such as Potted Pirates, Potted Sherlock, and Potted Ponto, but none has had quite the same reaction. The books are enduring, he says, noting that proper Potterheads love the show. But even audience members with no prior knowledge of the Potter canon should be able to come and join in the laughter. Potted Potter, Tuesday, January 4th through Sunday, January 9th, Newman Center for the Performing Arts, 2344 East Iliff Avenue. Tickets are $36.99. Green Sky Bluegrass Returns to Mission Ballroom with New Music by Emily Ferguson After selling out a three-night run at Red Rocks Amphitheater last summer, Jamgrass Quintet Green Sky Bluegrass will return to the Mission Ballroom for a two-night run on Friday, January 7th and Saturday, January 8th. The band will use the show to debut songs from its latest album, Stress Dreams, which is set for release on Friday, January 21st. 
Dobro player Anders Beck says that he's beyond excited to play again in Denver, a city he considers a home away from home, as well as the live music capital of the U.S. Beck, who currently lives in Nashville, recalls how the band got started in Colorado, winning a place at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in 2006 and playing shows at such venues as the Ogden Theater, Cervantes Masterpiece Ballroom, and the Bluebird Theater. Two of the band's members currently reside in Denver. There's not another city in the country where the growth for our band has been that extreme, Beck says. To go from smaller clubs to three nights at Red Rocks is just a testament to the music scene that's in Denver. So anytime we get to play in Denver, it's really special to me and the whole band. The mission is kind of like our winter half of Red Rocks. Beck lived in Denver when the Mission Ballroom was being built, and the band performed there soon after it opened. Now it will be back on the stage, sharing songs from the new albums that the musicians haven't played live before. Stress Dreams is the product of nearly two years of work. We had planned on making a new album before COVID hit, which threw a huge monkey wrench into everything, Beck recalls. There were no shows, no live music anymore. Shows were canceled indefinitely. We didn't know if we'd have anywhere to record and make an album. So we ended up with more questions and answers than we've ever had. Everyone's stuck at home for months not expecting that, and people start writing a lot more, he continues. Without trying to be so, this album's contents became a lot more about isolation and the things that are taken away. The band met in Winter Park to work on the album in August of 2020, and the first recording session took place the next month in Vermont. We took over the studio because we couldn't have contact with anyone, Beck says. We were afraid of COVID. The people at the studio were afraid of COVID. So they essentially handed us the keys and were like, we'll drop catering off at the door twice a day and see you at the end. It was just us isolated there. The musicians spent two weeks recording in Vermont before going to Asheville, North Carolina, where they did two week-long sessions in March of 2021. The album was mastered and produced by Green Sky's engineer, Glenn Brown, who just won a Grammy with Billy Strings and Dominic Davis, who plays bass for Jack White. Green Sky Bluegrass is known for pulling bona fide musicians for guest appearances at its shows. Beck hints that the mission shows may have some surprises, but they're surprises, so I can't tell you what they are. He says the band is also hoping to pull together some sort of benefit to aid the victims of the recent Marshall Fire. But above all, Beck is just happy to be back playing here. The fans in Denver are really, really, really great music fans, he concludes, so it makes me so excited to play music there. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell.